0: Okay, well, good morning, everybody. I'm Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence, here to welcome you uh, to Wellcome Trust and to thank Wellcome Trust and the Royal Society, and in particular, Katrina Nevin Ridley of the Wellcome Trust for helping put today's uh, event together. Before I hand over to Vivian Parry, I'd just like to say very briefly for those of you who haven't been to an EI. Um, inspired event before. Why is this event happening and what is it? Well, the idea briefly is to put on the sort of event you normally see at political party conference fringe events without dragging you down to Bournemouth or Brighton and incarcerating you in, uh, in security rings, but more seriously to actually look at very hot, crunchy topics through the lens of those people directly involved in making the policy about them and or commenting on them and we felt that there really was a gap in terms of talking about science in the media, hence today's event. What I'm going to do now is hand over to Vivian, who probably is one of the best-known faces and voices of science in the media. She's, of course, a scientist by training, has variously presented Tomorrow's World and Panorama. She's been a columnist on the News of the World. She's a familiar and ongoing voice at Radio 4. So without much further ado, I'm going to hand over to you, Vivian.
1: Thank you very much, and uh, I'm delighted to welcome you all. I'm delighted to see that you have been so well-fed this morning. Um, <laughs> thank you, Mark, for the splendid hospitality of the welcome, and indeed these marvellous surroundings. I love being up on your top floor like this. Terrific. Anyway, um, I wonder what Malcolm Wicks thought of he would get in the headlines this morning when he was talking about, he thought, uh, satellite um, tagging and he's actually got granny tagging and abashing, and uh, probably not what he intended in terms of headlines, which, of course, is can science ever be presented accurately in headline news? Uh, there is an expectation from scientists that headlines can be uh, infinitely long, and normally they're, of course, no more than about 40 characters, nor can I place on record right at the very beginning, do journalists write headlines? It's subs who write headlines. But what I wanted to consider this morning, we've got four distinguished panellists, but some of the things that I'd like you to think about this morning, can science ever be presented accurately? Does it matter? Can pensions, I might add, ever be presented accurately in headlines? And does that matter? Are there expectations from scientists that are uh, over-optimistic about what headlines can deliver? And do the content of headlines and the content of the stories beneath them differ dramatically, and is that the problem? Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask each of our four panelists to present their pitch (coughs) for no more than five minutes, and I am a ferocious chairman. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, so there will be uh, no going over the five minutes. And we're going to... uh, Let me introduce to them uh, each uh, as they uh, come up to the plate, as it were. Uh, Mark Walport is Director of the Wellcome Trust and our host uh, this morning. He was, of course, a distinguished researcher himself. Uh, He's now Director uh, here. Uh, He was Professor of Medicine at the Head of Division of uh, Medicine at Imperial College, And uh, he was appointed member of the Council of Science and Technology in 2004. Mark, what's your take on this?
2: Okay, well, I think my answer to the exam question, as it were, can science ever be presented accurately in headline news, is with great difficulty, but keep trying, which I think is probably the same as your answer, Vivian. Um, Science is everywhere, and at a session like this, all you really have to do is look at the last 24 hours and see what's happened. Um, And I thought I would maybe divide my comments into three parts. And they're blame, risk and uncertainty, and fascination. And it seems to me that those are three categories under which you can look at science stories. Now, I have to make a confession, because actually I turned down the opportunity um, of speaking on Newsnight last night. And the context of that was blame. And this was Jeremy Paxman. um, And the interview was about the Sellafield tissues. Um, And his very first question was, doesn't this show the arrogance of doctors? And I think this illustrates one of the difficulties for scientists when science stories get involved in political issues and in a sense I think Paxman, Sellafield and Tissues is as much about the nuclear industry as it is anything to do with science extremely difficult in that context and I thought the people that did appear were brave but actually didn't do terribly well against the Paxman onslaught um, the issue there in fact is post mortems of people who died many years ago this was not Alder Hay, these were just small bits of tissue as far as I can ascertain and it would seem very peculiar if they weren't retained actually to look at them find out if possible how these poor people died, and the tragedy of course in all of the post mortem uh, uh, issues that there have been has been actually the people that died it's the, the deaths of the people rather than necessarily the tissue but so that's one example of where blame is a very difficult thing I think for scientists to deal with and of course the BSE story was a wonderful example where actually the scientists were blamed for what of course was in a sense bad agricultural practices, nothing to do with the actual the scientists themselves so <laughs> Turning now briefly to risk, um, the breakfast news this morning, um, headline, 20% increase in ovarian cancer in patients taking hormone replacement therapy. Big number. Um, Rosemary Leonard comes onto the story, who is, I think, extremely good at communicating risk. And what she said was, well, actually, what this means is that there's one additional case amongst every 2,500 women taking hormone replacement therapy. And then recycled 10 minutes later to the, um, what would it have been? It would have been, I think, the 7 o'clock news just as I was setting out. Um, an additional 1,000 women died of ovarian cancer. So here, if you like, is the same data communicated in three different ways, each sending different messages about risk to the audience listening to it. And I think this is one of the major issues that actually, I think science is always bumping into this question of uncertainty and risk. And how do you communicate it accurately on the one (coughs) hand, but to try and get the proportions right on the other? And in fact, it's quite a good opportunity to plug the Science Media Center um, pamphlet on this. They produce just an A4 sheet called Communicating Risk in a Soundbite: a guide for scientists. But I think this is one of the really difficult areas for science, and it's the one where the headline can actually send quite a dramatic message um, very easily. Um, And I mean, I've just collected, Um, these are the cuttings that, um, we have a wonderful library next door uh, with lots and lots of ephemera, and people talk about um, the fate of newspapers. Well, the fate of newspapers in our library is that they get stored forever, as far as I can tell. Um, But these are just the cuttings over the last couple of years on flu. Um, And they make, of course, the point that actually there is an enormous amount out there about science, so it really is important. So I just want to turn to the the, the third example, which is fascination. Um, And this is a piece of science that the Wellcome Trust has funded over the um, last few years, which is an enormous genetic study. Um, And what's happened is that um, it's now possible to look at genetic variation between each of us in this room in ways that were never possible before. And it's now possible to look at half a million genetic variations between each of us, really in a fairly straightforward fashion. And so scientists have been doing studies comparing 2,000 healthy people with, for example, thousands of people with obesity. And a gene came out of that which is associated with fat. And examples of the headlines, doctors find the fat gene. Um, and as has already been pointed out, um, Uh, the journalists don't write the headlines. Um, I think the headline for Mark's piece was Fat Gene Found by Scientists, which is wonderfully ambiguous. I don't think the gene was particularly fat. Um, and, 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 And another example, The Evening Standard Proof, There is a gene that makes you fat. Uh, Not true, Milad. It's food that makes you fat. Uh, The gene might help, Um, and no one quite knows how it does it. Maybe it increases our appetite, maybe it changes our metabolism, maybe it makes us exercise less. Um, So I think it's quite helpful to think about science in these three categories because I think it illustrates the different opportunities and pitfalls. And I think the easiest bit for the science community is the fascination because there is a lot of fascination out there And I can go into PubMed, which provides a a database of all the papers that are published um, in the scientific literature, and every day you can look there and find fascinating stories. And so I think scientists have got to be encouraged to get out there. I think communication of risk is something that we can't duck. It is a really important issue. It's one of the reasons people are interested in science. What does it mean for me? What does it mean for society in the future? And I think we've just got to work hard at communicating what are really difficult issues. Um, And I think when it comes to blame, then I think we've got to learn to deal with the Paxmans of this world. But I think this is the most difficult area for scientists. Um, And I did wonder in the morning whether I should have gone on Newsnight. And I sort of thought the answer to the question was, and I only realised it 12 hours too late, was yes, some doctors are arrogant, but then so are some journalists. (laughs)
1: maybe I'll stop at that point (laughs) seems a good point thank you very much seems a good point to introduce a journalist at this stage (laughs) Uh, Mark Henderson is uh, science editor of the Times I'm delighted to say he's my uh, colleague and much esteemed he is on the paper and indeed by readers as well he writes the splendid junk medicine column in Body and Soul on Saturdays uh, which I think um, both irritates and stimulates in uh, equal measure uh, he won the Medical Journalists Association News Story of the Year Award in 2005. He came to the Times as a mere boy, as a trainee. <laughs> um, f- not from science, in fact. Not from science. Not from science. Uh, Mark, um, can science ever be presented accurately in the headlines?
3: Okay, well, I, I think the answer to that is, is broadly yes, but probably not for the reasons that uh, some people... May think I, I would agree with Mark as well that it's an, a, an extremely challenging proposition, uh, but not one that's insuperable. What I thought I'd start with was would would be actually a, a slightly provocative uh, statement about the media, which is that ultimately the media, in the final analysis, is not particularly interested in accuracy as a uh, as a, a, a fundamental principle. Um, Every media outlet, whether it be a newspaper or even a a public body like the BBC, has a bottom line, which is to sell its product, not to uh, produce an accurate product. Now, for a paper like the Times or an organisation like the BBC, accuracy is one of the tools that we use to sell the product, not a goal in and of itself. I think that um, individual journalists obviously do feel a great responsibility and a duty to to get things right, particularly those working uh, within a specialism such as science. I mean, I want to get things right, first of all, because I value it. Secondly, because if I get things wrong on a regular basis, then people like Mark will stop talking to me and I won't get stories so much anymore. Um, But also because ultimately my readers uh, value a paper like The Times and perhaps buy it instead of uh, another paper because they like to feel that they can trust what 's in it they like to feel that uh, they are buying a paper that's written by journalists who know what they're talking about, who don't sensationalize etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But <clears throat> it is always important to remember that uh, journalists aren 't trying to be well that the media as a whole certainly is not uh, a public information um, engine, it is is, is about news, it's about what's new, it's about what's arresting, what's interesting, what sells newspapers. It's it's not the same as government information leaflets, it's not the same as uh, being a platform for scientists to tell the public what they think is important and why they should know this and should know that. none of this although this is sometimes a barrier to uh, accuracy it's not an insuperable one so long as people realise what they're actually dealing with in the first place and try to exploit um, uh, this this, uh, engine rather than uh, fighting (coughs) against it there's no point sort of sitting up and thinking well can we change the media, can we make it something that's isn't, that, it, that it isn't? You've got to actually work with it. I think Mark's example of, of Newsnight there is, is, is a good one in that, in that respect. Um, it's a neutral, it's, it, it, it's ultimately a neutral thing, the, uh, uh, the, the way that the media works. It's, it's always going to be like that. It's probably pointless trying to change it. Um but it does explain some of the problems that scientists always complain about. Um, headlines Viv has already pointed out that they're not usually written by the same people. There's often, as well, a process of negotiation with editors over stories. The fat gene story that, that Mark um, uh, talked about is a, is a good example but with my own experience. Um, I was very determined in that in the actual body of the story that we would not describe it as a gene that makes you fat or something like that. I was asked by the um, uh, the, the editor on the on the back bench who was putting together the front page, "Oh, can't we just call it an obesity gene in the intro?" And I said, "No, you can call it a fat gene in the headline because that's a kind of accepted shorthand for for this sort of thing." And actually, even the, I was even rather pleased they put the fat gene in, in inverted commas as well, which was a, a plus. But um, you you sometimes have to. Realise as a journalist wanting to get things right where you have to row back uh, and and let the people who want to push things slightly too far get away with something in order to win the battles that really matter in terms of really explaining things pro- properly um other problems i mean there's a tendency, big tendency, to report the scare, report the breakthrough, uh, report the really arresting, really surprising research finding that may actually not be borne out in the in the long run. That's never going to change. News is about what's new. It's about what's arresting. It's about what makes you think. What's surprising. What you didn't know before. Uh, what stops you and think makes you think. Wow. Um, the the problem with that though sometimes is that. Uh, very often studies that come along later that actually show that the sensational first story was was perhaps not correct often get overlooked. Actually, in my column this week, I've been writing about just such a case, which is um, SSRIs, antidepressants. Uh, There was a... I mean, you're all familiar with the bad publicity that SSRIs have had of late. There was actually a study, a very interesting, very, very good meta-analysis that was published in JAMA this week, which looked at, I think, 27 studies and found that actually the uh, risks of uh, teen uh, suicidal thoughts uh, on SSRIs were actually much lower than has previously been reported. That story didn't get reported anywhere, um, largely because the, the negative finding to something that fits with a good narrative uh, and an, a narrative about over of uh, mental health and so on is, is something that's a very difficult sell. It's always going to be that way. Um, I'm probably going over time here. So I think um, just one more point, really, is that uh, the best way to, to deal with this as a, or to deal with the situation as a community is to remember that most specialist journalists are on your side. They want to get things right for all manner of reasons, even if the bottom line is selling newspapers. But the best way to do that is to be available to help them. Uh, what you really If you don't talk to people, you have no chance of influencing what appears. And I think that's uh, as, as important a lesson as any.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Mark. Now, let me turn to uh, Martin Rees. Uh, Lord Rees, of course, very well known to you as the President of the Royal Society and as um, uh, very distinguished cosmologist and very splendid author, actually. Many lovely books, uh, which I commend to you. Um, So you come to us really from the higher planes of science. Can uh, science ever be communicated in a headline?
4: Well, sometimes a headline is better than the article. And let me quote my favourite headline, which was stimulated by a talk given by the former Archbishop of York, John Habgood who'd started life as a scientist at the British Association. And the headline was, Monkeys may have souls, says primate. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was the Daily Telegraph, I think, not, uh, not the Times. Um, well, it is a challenge to distill and interpret science, and skilled communicators are more essential than ever, and I agree with what the two Marx have said already. Um, In fact, uh, newspaper articles and broadcasts about science deepen my respect for the journalists who prepare them. I I find it hard to explain in simple language even something in my field, which I think I understand well. But the science writers, of course, need to cover science unfamiliar to them, working to strict deadlines. And they need then to speak to camera without hesitation, deviation or repetition if they're TV journalists. And, of course, these journalists do face frustrations because if a topic gets to the front page it's hijacked by other more general journalists who don't have a background in science. And of course few senior editors or gatekeepers in the media do have a scientific background and that's one of the problems. And also, and again I'm still flattering the journalists in this part of my talk, um, the scientific community is not always helpful itself. Some scientists are uncommunicative and others I'm afraid do hype up their own contributions and science reporters now have to be as sceptical of some scientific claims as they routinely are of politicians. But many of us who are professional scientists spend some of our time as amateur communicators, presenting our work to general audiences, and I myself would derive less satisfaction from my research if I could only present it to a few of my academic colleagues. But of course, just as it's harder to teach in primary schools than at universities, so it's much harder to explain things to a general audience than to one's fellow specialists. Now, uh, what's the role of uh, science in the media? Um, As has been said, it only really earns a newspaper headline of any kind, or gets in the TV bulletins as background information when there's some scare story or natural disaster, not as a story in its own right. Scientists sometimes complain about their work not getting enough attention, Um, but they shouldn't complain about this any more than novelists or composers would complain that their new works don't make the news bulletins. The place for most science is the features, pages and documentaries. And I think coverage restricted to newsworthy headline items, newly announced results that carry a crisp message, is bound to be something of a distortion of the way science operates and gives people slightly the wrong impression. Mark Wolpert mentioned the fascination of science and uh, uh, my area of research is astronomy and cosmology and this of course is one that does have um, a public appeal um, matched probably only by Darwinism and dinosaurs. And I enjoy sharing my ideas uh, the advances, the mystery and the wonder with a wide audience. And Although the details may be arcane, I genuinely believe that the essence of these concepts can be conveyed to a general readership without misleading distortion. And, of course, it's surely a cultural deprivation to be unaware of the marvellous vision of nature offered by Darwinism and by modern cosmology, the chain of emergent complexity starting from the mysterious Big Bang to atoms, stars, planets, biospheres and brains able to ponder the wonder and the mystery. So this is a wonderful story which one wants to get over, although in uh, lectures and documentaries rather than uh, in um, uh, uh, news items. Now, when we come to the applications of science, then of course it's very important that scientists should engage with the public and with the media because how science is applied and prioritised, which doors are open and which left closed, shouldn't be decided by scientists alone. These choices need to be made after the widest possible discussion, but mindful of the best scientific evidence available. But, of course, if the debate is to rise above the level of tabloid slogans, everyone needs some feel for what science can do and what it can't. To realise that science isn't dogma, risks are never zero, noisy controversy doesn't always connote evenly balanced arguments, and so forth. The hardest type of situation to convey honestly is when there's a strong consensus but some dissent. Noisy controversy did not signify evenly balanced arguments. Now, it's true that pioneering scientists have often had a hard time gaining a hearing, but the opposite often happens because controversy. And the scepticism of orthodoxy has such public appeal and confrontations make such lively broadcasts that dissident scientists are more likely to get exaggerated attention than to be ignored. And I think when an issue is controversial, readers or viewers need an indication of whether a particular view is widely supported or whether it's disputed by 99.9% of other specialists. We love to see the establishment routed, but such cases are rarer than the public's led to think. To take one recent example, the Channel 4 uh, programme called the Great Global Warming Swindle was an example where they got a few scientists, but uh, someone who just watched that programme will get a grossly distorted view of the scientific evidence. Now, as regards uh, the public's knowledge of science, it's true that there are some people who don't know the difference between a proton and a protein, and uh, we hope that uh, one can have a slightly more educated public to raise the debate. But on the other hand, I think scientists sometimes are overstrident in bemoaning the weak scientific grasp which uh, the public have in general. They protest too much. And that's because in every area of public policy, uh, the public has far less knowledge than one would hope. I mean, for instance, in the Middle East now, Uh, The number of people who know the difference between Sunni and uh, uh, the other kinds of Muslims um, is very small and you can't understand what's going on without that. So that's another important example where uh, the level of uh, debate is unduly strident because people don't have enough background. Uh, Well, uh, finally, just uh, one message for scientists. I think, as I've said, they have an obligation to uh, uh, engage with the public Um, they should realise they had no special expertise outside science, but they should engage with the ethical and political discussions. Uh, But one thing they need to remember, which is that understanding science is not the same as promoting science. And when people understand scientists better, they won't necessarily like us better, nor will they worry less about some of our activities. Open policy debates stimulated by the media will become more intelligent, but they'll be tougher for the scientists and the others, but that's a very good thing. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, indeed. Now, finally, we move to uh, Joe Revel. Joe Revel is, uh, was the dis- uh, health editor of The Observer, now the Whitehall editor, with special uh, emphasis, I think, on health. I mean, they would be mad to throw away that wonderful <laughs> knowledge that you have on uh, health. Um, Joe's written on allergies and on uh, pandemic flu. In fact, I think you are Mrs. Avian Flu. I am. Ms. <laughs> Avian Flu. Ms. <laughs> Avian Flu, indeed. Uh, so bringing up the rear and uh, representing uh, newspapers, rising above tabloid slogans, uh, Jo Revel.
5: Thank you. Well, I won't, I won't talk for too long, because I think so much has been covered already by the other panellists, and I would endorse everything, particularly what Mark was saying about the role of papers, uh, which may not be to uh, inform, it may be more to entertain and surprise. Uh, And that's where the difficulty lies, of course. I think you can get science presented accurately in the headlines, but it's difficult, it's jolly difficult, because there are so many people on a newspaper that have an input into that story. And I cannot tell you the number of times I've had to explain that bacteria is not a virus and that a vaccine is, is Tamiflu is not a vaccine, for example, just, just a basic understanding of science which is not there for most people that work in the media. And therefore, you a- end up acting as a kind of, trying to be a guardian or custodian of the facts. And a lot of my job, um, and I don't know how this is for Mark, but it's actually knocking down stories that come in via the news desk and others and saying, no, that's not true, ignore it. Um, And they then go, well, what are you going to do then? What's your story? What have you got this week? (laughs) And you then have to find something even more exciting than a story that says that, um, you know, homeopathy will cure cancer or something. Um, So you, you have a very strange role on your paper, and the reason why headlines become... Uh, why headlines can be wrong is because there are people who don't fully get the story or because you may not be in the office that day when the headline's written and you can't see it going through. There are lots of ways that errors can creep in I think uh, a political editor once said to me that politics is so sloppy and messy and difficult and he saw his job as taking a very complex messy story and shining it through some kind of prism ...to end up with a distilled version of that story... ...which would never, ever tell you the whole story... ...but if you were lucky, would kind of carry the essence of it. And I think that's what a lot of us try to do. And I think one of the good things now is that with with websites... ...for example, with the the Guardian's website... ...there is now uh, an ability for a lot of journalists... ...to write at greater length on a story. So even if you only get 800 words in your own paper you can maybe get a much longer piece on the web for people who do want to know more about it. Uh, I think all of us that have been through the whole debart Clover MMR feel, <laughs> feel very frustrated and very, um, you know, disappointed at times at how things work out, and how the media just sometimes latches onto stories, uh, certain parts of it anyway, and will not let go, and it's always going to be there. And the best you can do is, within your own organisation, try and put what you see as as the truth, as the other side of the story. But as I say, I think it is is a difficult and messy business, and people often don't understand understand that.
1: Okay, thank you very much indeed. Now we're going to come to the audience. Now I should say at this point uh, that this is on the record because it's being podcasted. And we're going to be sending the link to everyone who's uh, attended here today. So just remember that in your questions and answers.
4: Yes, of course. told us too late.
1: told us too late, says Martin. Right. Okay. Um, just let me um, start things off by asking uh, perhaps Mark when he's finished his pouring. Finished. Um, just bring it back does does it matter that does science have a particular um, is it science particular in its needs to be represented accurately i mean you wouldn't make the same case for instance about uh, pensions or why is it that scientists make so much fuss about science in the headlines
2: because i think it needs to be represented accurately if it has an implication for what someone does and so mmr is the classic example of that if, as a consequence of inaccurate or wrong science, people stop vaccinating their children against MMR, then we have measles outbreaks. So it's important in a situation where someone will do something as a consequence.
1: But more important than pensions?
2: Well, pensions may be equally important if someone is going to do something as a consequence. So I mean, I, I think it would apply to anything where if actually... I think, I think what's sometimes forgotten is that the media has the potential... For harm to flow, and harm, as you say, can flow in the context of pensions. It could flow in the context in the context of investments, what people do with their money. There are all sorts of situations. But as it, as it were, the idea that the media is somehow free of responsibility in relation to what people do, I think, is is a, a, a misconception. And, I, and so, I think that science is one particular subset, and particularly health, where you know, would it be a good thing if, as a result of a headline, everyone suddenly stopped taking HRT. So but I think it's about harm flight.
5: But is science a special case, Joe. Uh, no, not particularly. And I don't think it's seen as a special case on papers either. Mm. I mean, it's, it's an area. There is an insatiable at- appetite for science stories and health stories. Um, it, so there, there is more and more demand for really, really good stories. And there's actually quite a demand for stories about... The stories that are slightly offbeat so for example stuff on alternative therapy um but i don't think it's any more important to be accurate there than it is for example on a transport story an education story
1: let's come to our I, uh, just
3: add, add something briefly to that I I, I I would agree with with both actually but I, th- I think there is a there is a responsibility to to try to get things right with mm-hmm. science but but one of, the, one of the problems very often that we face is that um, sometimes, and Joe alluded to this a, a bit as well, that, that specialists spend a hell of a lot of uh, almost almost rate themselves by what they keep out of a paper as much as what they get in. Mm-hmm. But um, it doesn't always work. I mean, a, a really good example was last week. There was a uh, story uh, that Sky News were running about an Indian doctor who... Um, was injecting people with stem cells, uh, embryonic stem cells, in a desperately um, dodgy way that um, this isn't part of a trial or anything like that. It's all premature. Claiming miracle cures for multiple Mm. sclerosis, et cetera, et cetera. Sky was going overboard on this. I was asked about it by my news desk. A news desk actually expecting me to say this and being very happy to, to take the answer. I said we shouldn't touch this. It's irresponsible. We'll raise false, false hope. Probably not true. No proof for what she's doing, etc. And they said fine. However, the Daily Telegraph took a comp- news, news desk took a completely different view. Their science chap I know said exactly the same thing, and he was told to write it anyway. And it's 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 tough i mean the the other thing just on the politics analogy it quite often we get asked as science journalists oh well why don't you can't you uh, send back your copy for us to check that it's correct before uh, before you uh, put it in the paper and so on and I never, <laughs> <laughs> I never do that i never i will never do that and i mean would you expect would anybody ever expect a politician to have the the, the, the
1: right to do that Well, let's start taking some questions. A lady in the back there.
6: Carol Stone, I'm formerly with the BBC I'm now with a new company called YouGov Stone, uh, which is independent research, Uh, interesting uh, very interesting to hear what you had to say, Mark Henderson I think to say that media are not interested in accuracy only in a product and to include the BBC in that, you did qualify it afterwards but I think that is totally wrong or largely wrong at any rate I take your point that it is difficult but to say that the media go out, programmes like Panorama like any questions that I used to produce or any of these programmes, today programme even just to get a sensational story, not to be accurate I think is false. Uh, Mark Walpole, I think you say scientists should be encouraged to get out there. You should have got out there. You should have been on Paxman last night. I think I really do. <laughs> Um, Let me me just carry on. You say that um, scientists... Take it uh, on the chin,
1: Mark. (laughs) I think there may be
6: a a case that scientists should report their findings more clearly, that maybe they're not very clear to decipher, and also that scientists among themselves disagree. I don't think it's quite... So you say allow harm to flow, maybe scientists allow allow facts to flow that aren't necessarily right. And lastly, I think that let's take this HRT story. I've been wondering for years, it's too late for me now, whether or not to take HRT. I still don't know from this morning's story. You gave me these examples of three, but who was right and who was wrong and why were they wrong? Give me the answer. What is the answer? You say don't stop taking our HRT. What are we supposed to do? Take it for a couple of days?
1: Now, I think a, f- a fundamental question there about the, 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 the clearly an expectation that science can deliver certainty particularly with regards to HRT. So, Mark Walpole you were attacked for not going on Newsnight. I'll, t- I'll
2: tell you why I didn't go on Newsnight, and I did think about it very hard, and it was because, actually, I don't know the facts. So, in the case of Sellafield, I didn't know what tissue had been taken, I didn't know how much, um, I, and so I think very difficult. I would have gone on if I had known the facts, um, but I think a, a point in respect of the BBC particularly, and I think it comes back to Martin Rees's point, It's this tyranny of the equal and the opposite view, that there is this necessity almost, on today's programme, I think it's exemplified, that you have to have two people speaking. And the public can only judge by the plausibility of what the people say, regardless of whether there are 900 people on one side and one on the other. And I think that typified the problem with the MMR debate, that there was constantly this equal and opposite, apparently... Where actually there was no equality in that balance, if you had a pair of scales there, you would see it firmly down on one side, and I think that's the challenge. And again, I think the context of BBC Newsnight last night, they wanted an argument.
3: Just to just to address the point there that was, I think, addressed to me, um, I th- you may have misunderstood slightly. I, I, I'm not. I'm not saying that. The media are completely uninterested in accuracy at all. What I'm saying is, it's not their fundamental interest. And um, if you like, it's the difference between an ultimate and approximate explanation. We are approximately interested in accuracy, absolutely, because it's um, it's a way of uh, it's, it's it's a way of branding your your product. But the ultimate. Goal of any business is to um, is, is to is to sell itself, and I'm afraid I don't accept that the BBC are different. Um, you just have to look at some of the recent Panorama products to 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 um, to look at that. I mean, the, their their program, their program on Mohamed Taranisi, for example, being a complete case in point of desperately sensational television that uh, was misleading, to put it charitably. Um, so I mean, I, I really don't think that you can say that the BBC is in any any case a special case. The, the the way the Today programme has dealt with issues like global warming and MMR by putting 50-50 debates up on issues that aren't 50-50. The BBC has many virtues, but ultimately it's it's no different from any of the other serious media in that respect. Yeah.
6: That for the MMR debate, or whatever, that, that in Newsnight, or whatever it is, the day programme, there should be three people giving the case for and one against. And yet, we are, the, this, the day programme is not biased. We've got three, four, and one against. Are you really seriously suggesting that?
3: Well, actually, probably yes, yes in the case of MMR. If there was,
5: if there was, a, if, there was a, uh, if we're talking about robust science here, if, if we're going to talk about MMR, if there were scientific evidence that MMR may do harm. I think we would feel that we would want to report actually, it and look at it, mm. but it's not there. It's just not there. And all of us have dealt with this now for so many years, and study after study has come out to show that it's not there. So what do you do? Do you, do you report something that's not there? You wouldn't do it in another, in another field.
3: Actually, the, there's, a, there's, an interest, there's an interesting analogy, actually, with HRT and MMR. HRT is one of those genuine cases where there is extremely... Good but uncertain evidence on either side. Is it safe? Is it not safe? It's a classic controversy that is worth reporting as a controversy and as an interesting debate. MMR is not. It, it, it simply doesn't stack up in that in, in that way.
1: But it's the fundamental problem, Martin, because mm. people want certainty in headlines from science stories.
4: I think so. I think they don't realise that the normal situation in science, if it's a fairly mature subject, so there is a fairly strong consensus, um, but clearly it's not certain, but that the views of the collectivity of experts are uh, on one side, and that's uh, hard to get over. You don't have to be dogmatic, we may all be wrong, uh, but on the other hand, uh, you want to say that there is an, not an evenly balanced argument. And going back to the BBC, um, I've twice had the experience of being asked to be on today Programme. I said yes, but then I... I found the invitation withdrawn because they had thought I wanted to rubbish the other speaker. And when they found I agree with the other speaker, they didn't want me anymore. So that's just an example of how uh, their concern is for, uh, for yeah. balance uh, and making a debate uh, even when there is a real consensus.
7: This lady in the front here. Lucy Navarro from Tesco. I wanted to actually be a bit more positive. Um, I think the science area is quite fortunate. I mean, One of the trends mm. y- you can see looking forward is people are concerned, I suppose, about immortality. So they're really interested in stories about health, mm. stories about climate change, stories about safety, all areas where you know scientists have got a lot to offer. So there's a big plus. The other big plus is, uh, I don't think you suffer from the financial stories. Everything's written by five past eight on a financial story. Whereas on a science story, um, you've got all day to talk about people to write, write extra stuff on the internet, a point Joe was making. So I think there are some positives as well as the problems that we've all been discussing. One should remember those. Um, I just wanted to pick up uh, a point about what you might do to make the newsrooms more scientifically friendly. And I had two thoughts. I think one goes to the school curriculum, which is rather a (laughs) long-term build, but certainly on something like risk, listening to Martin. I do think we could do a better job on risk in schools. I mean, people just have no idea about the difference, you know, is it more dangerous to go skiing or, or, are you, or to get, you know, have, go to hospital and get MRSA? I suspect you're very unlikely to get BSE. People just haven't got any idea at all, and I just think the maths or some sort of curriculum could do something about that, not just briefing for scientists through the Royal Society or whatever. The other thing that occurred to me from what Joe was saying is what about a sort of scientific misbriefing If we we had the problem you had, one would sort of try and put it into the induction for the editor, as it were, so that at least they're beginning to understand some basic facts. I mean, small things can actually make quite a little bit of difference.
1: Um, That's an interesting view. Mark, scientific induction for the editor of The Times.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Nice idea. (laughs) Will it ever happen? No. (laughs) Ultimately, uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult. I mean, it's it's a fact of life that um, most people who go into journalism are uh, humanities graduates including myself as that happens Um, and uh, the the number of people on a newspaper or or in a media organisation who instinctively understand science is always going to be very small I suspect it's because the kind of people who get attracted into the media in the first place tend to be more like that I I don't know I mean that, that should be that could be something that could change over the long term it would be nice if it changed over the long term I don't see anything like that happening imminently and I think the journalists are tremendously proud people as well and if you try to say to them you need to be taught to do this uh, they're going to rebel against it and it'll probably actually be counterproductive
1: and I might add that you haven't done so badly from O-level science
3: Yeah, uh, GCSE. GCSE, well,
1: (laughs) Um, But, uh, Martin, Mm. can I come to you about this question about educating people about science? Because, of course, one of the problems is some of the the major headlines are coming with new science, which
4: Mm.
1: couldn't reach the curriculums.
4: Yes. Right. uh, First, I think it doesn't matter at all that the journalists are not trained in science, because even a scientist is fairly lay outside a special area. Uh, And so uh, I think it's uh, no accident that many of the best science journalists are people from a humanities background. I think that's fine. But uh, regarding uh, education, I agree with you that uh, most of the science is not the traditional curriculum. And that's why um, this uh, GCSE, which has been controversial, and has been attacked by some people like Richard Sykes, has been supported by the Royal Society and other bodies, because uh, for those who aren't going to go on to be professional scientists, uh, it does give them a flavour of the way in which science increasingly is going to impact on their lives in the 21st century. Um, And could I just make make, um, uh, another point uh, regarding risks? Um, It is true that the public has a very distorted perception of relative risks. I mean, they over Worry about, say, rail crashes, carcinogens in food, but they're in denial about much larger risks. I think that's a,
8: a real concern.
1: Yes, 20 a day smokers who complain about organic food—that's
4: mm-hmm. the one that gets me. <laughs> yes.
1: um, in there.
8: My name's Claire Bithen and I'm from the Science Media Centre. It's our major role to get the views of scientists into the news media and into the headlines. I wanted to make just a quick comment on debates like MMR where you've got two people with opposing views. I think there's great benefit from having scientists who are used to dealing with the media who can say 99.9% of my colleagues believe that MMR is safe and that your child should be vaccinated. There are people who don't believe what I'm saying but 99% of clinicians do. Um, more generally, I wanted to ask the panel a question on medical breakthroughs. We deal with quite a lot of clinicians who, after they've spoken in the media, they'll get a deluge of patients getting in touch saying, "We want to know about this breakthrough. We think you've got a cure. That we can. Can we be on your trial?" Um, I wondered if you've got advice of how to avoid hyping medical medical break, well, medical um, papers or research and avoiding getting the breakthrough headline um, and also advice to scientists who may have done something very interesting and exciting but um, are asked how long away the medical cure is. So they're always asked, you know, is it going to be five years, ten years and they say it could be five years, it could be 20 years and obviously what gets reported is the five years. So I just wanted to get your opinions on that.
1: Now, I will confess that on Tomorrow's World, um, A, we were banned from using the word breakthrough, but B, we talked about el- how electric cars would be ubiquitous in five years' time, for 30 years, um, without <laughs> anyone ever <laughs> rumbling us. Um,
5: Joe. Yes, that breakthrough word's hard. In terms of um, clinicians being inundated by, by pa- with patients who then want to know about it, um, uh, It's difficult because within your story, I can write, you know, that this therapy is not likely to be available for at least five years. That may or may not survive into copy because the subs may think the story is too long and simply cut that bit out. And that's part of the sloppiness of the whole thing. I mean, the other thing you can uh, sometimes do that that helps, I think, is to say to the clinician themselves, look, you know, this is a good story. You're likely to have a lot of calls from it have you got an email or have you got a system for dealing with those patients or have you got a website that we can refer to so that what really helps is for the patients themselves to be able to click onto a website and for the doctor or scientist to have written a piece themselves about it and explain whether or not there's a trial going on and what's happening and again that's another area where the internet really helps I think.
1: And Mark, you're in a past life your yeah, work absolutely. on rheumatology generated just those sorts of headlines Yes, I mean,
2: I I think the issue here is that if there's no impact, there's no story. And so this is a problem that one has to live with. And in my past life, yes, I was absolutely used to people coming into the clinic and brandishing a newspaper cutting about some uh, notional breakthrough. But actually, you just cope with that. It's a good way of talking about the subject more generally. It's a good way about explaining about science in relation to illness. So I think it's just something that we have to live with and manage. And I think if you look at the coverage of that gene associated with an increased risk of obesity, it got it just right, actually. Mm. Um, And it got across the... the, There was a superb editorial in the Financial Times really making the point that the gene isn't responsible for obesity. It's your eating and your exercise that are in different ways responsible for it. And so I think you can get it right, but I just think this is a problem that we have to live with. If it's going to be news, then people are going to expect it to have some impact.
3: Could I just add a very small point to what Joe said? It's, it's not just a matter of the subs taking out the uh, caveat that you've inserted. Sometimes readers don't read the caveat as well, mm, or they just simply ignore it. I've had a number mm. of studies which have been made, which I've written up where I've made it very clear, sometimes in the intro or the second paragraph, that this is research that's been done on mice. And I get calls the next day from patients saying, where can I get it? it People, people, particularly when they're desperate and ill, are, 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 they're, they're always willing to, to um, take things too far. Yeah.
9: Lots of questions. Uh, gentleman here. Victor Keegan, The, the Guardian. Uh, I was very interested in the comments about the web, because the web is really uh, a, a very good thing in all this, because it has what journalists uh, only wish they could have. <laughs> You come to a difficult word, and there's a hyperlink to explain it, so you don't have to explain every word. Because a lot of our problems are simply explaining things. Uh, annuity? Do I explain that every time I, I, I use it? When I report oh, this, this today podcast, will you give me a couple of a couple of lines to explain that? Well, the web has has that increasingly with Wikipedia and that. It's sort of most of it is good is good science, and as young people are increasingly un- and sadly reading, getting their news from the web rather than newspapers, I think that's a wholly uh, good good sign. And there's also coming back to the the subject of this debate there's an interesting trend in that headlines are now starting to be written not just to grab readers tomorrow but to go into the web to be picked up by search engines and in the, the long tail can i have another couple of sentences to describe long tail uh, in years to come by search engines so that is all subtly changing
5: is the web
1: changing the way you write
5: yes i, th- I think there is i mean there's a, there's an issue about the tone that you reach on, on a story with the website, I think. Um, in a way, uh, the, the website stories, I always feel, are far more matter-of-fact and straightforward, whereas with a the newspaper, there is more opportunity to, um, to hype it up or to, to make it slightly more exciting than it is. And of course, the headline is so much more important in a newspaper than it is on the website. I mean, that's, that's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, but I see, I see the web as a terrifically good thing for, for science, actually.
1: Mark, I was just going to say that uh, dilemma about headlines, where, there, of course, the headline is nothing to do with the actual story. I mean, famously, in the Daily Mail, a headline with a question mark at the end, the answer is always no. <laughs> you know, is BSE caused by
3: oh, eating I know.
1: fish? Um, question mark, the answer is no.
3: It's, um, it's, it's very difficult, the whole question of headlines. Yeah. I mean... Um, i have I've started to if I think a story is particularly sensitive to keep a close eye on the sub who's writing the headline uh, but even then you can't always win and uh, i mean the the uh, Joe's already mentioned it the you you do a great story about Tamiflu, and some idiot puts vaccine in the headline and it it, it doesn't just it makes it, it makes you look stupid even though it's not your fault which is which is irritating in terms of the web it's 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 difficult it's it, is it it's too early to say that it's massively changing things. I think it will more and more um, and it's difficult to say how at this stage. Um, I think one of the things that's um, going to make everybody a lot more careful and actually is is a way that's going to really improve accuracy is is more and more papers now we certainly do it have a forum at the end of every article for um, people Mm -hmm. to feedback and put comments in immediately. And certainly, even if if, if that's not a a possibility on your own paper's website, you can bet if you've got something seriously wrong, it's going to be torn apart in blogs all over the world Mm -hmm. within 24 hours. And that is an incentive to get things right that's, that's a lot tougher than the reader's letter in a lot of ways.
1: Uh, but it's also, I should say, uh, an incentive not to write about certain subjects which are mm, particularly yeah, yeah. Uh, prone to por- polarity. Um, where have we got our next?
3: Dr. Simon Festing, Director of the Research Defence Society. Uh, it's a twofold question. Firstly, um, do you think there's been some signs of improvement? Because if I think back maybe three to five years, BSC, GM crops, MMR, there seem to be so many problem issues. Uh, in my own field, the use of animals in research headlines were pretty negative but now it seems to be a lot more positive or I struggle to think of so many problem areas and secondly do the activities of lobby groups or, or groups designed to try and help this issue like the Science Media Centre and Sense About Science do they have any impact or are they just so small in a, in a big field
5: let
1: me ask our scientists
4: mm-hmm. Martin yes um, well I think you're right there have been positive gradients due to the bodies you mentioned Um, But I think also the scientists are sort of more sensitised to what are going to be the issues. We all know that GM crops was handled very badly in the UK because opinion got... uh, polarized commercial interest came into the game before there was a proper debate um, and certainly uh, uh, if you compare what's happened for the stem cell regulations in this country and what the Royal Society has been trying to do in nanotechnology by engaging with the public before it's crucial. I think that's been uh, been helping to uh, raise the, the level of debate um, but I think it's important that we keep the gradient positive because there are more and more issues in science that are going to engage with the public and involve ethical concerns and so I think it's very important but I think the organisations like the Science Media Centre Sense About Science and your own organisation have been very helpful Mark
1: Wolpert, the bad days of MMR over? Are Uh, we getting in the media? I
2: I mean I think that we're going through a better phase but I I wouldn't say that we should lose uh, vigilance. I mean it seems to me there is a sort of hero to zero point in each of these stories and I think in the animal world as it were the digging up of that body in connection with the Dali Oaks farm was one such tipping point where I think the public revulsion was such that finally everyone, including the media, lost patience. And I think similarly with MMR, there suddenly became a point at which it really was apparent that the evidence was overwhelming, that MMR was not associated with autism, and then in fact suddenly the protagonist there went from hero to zero. But I wouldn't say this couldn't happen in the future, and I think it's bound to.
3: I think, from a from a media perspective, certainly, certainly within my own newspaper, it has definitely got better within mm. the last within the, the six six and a half years that I've been doing science. Some some of that is. Is SMC there a connection so we wonder <laughs> Well, I was <laughs> no. I, what I, what I think has made a big difference is I think that um, I think news desks, or certainly my news desk, have become a lot more responsive to listening to what Mm. specialists are saying in science i think they they were stung a bit i think that there's a a perception that they got things like mmr wrong and that they don't want that to happen again i think it also helps i mean at, at the moment we've got two former health correspondents on the news
10: desk so they know what it's like and that that helps a lot as well
1: can i take a question from
10: the front uh, hi, I'm Nico MacDonald. I write on innovation for the national and business media. Um, I've got three um, short theses I'd just like to get people's feedback on. I think there are some bigger issues here which we've alluded to. One is that politicians and political campaigners increasingly use science as a crutch. Um, Martin talked about the climate change discussion, and your comments about the great global warming swim were probably fair, but the reality is that politicians map scientific conclusions onto political actions. And that historically doesn't have a precedent, I don't think, and it's lazy and, you know, they're hiding behind science. Even in the 80s, gay campaigners, when there was a gay gene identified, would say, well, homosexuality is just natural, you know, rather than fighting for gay rights. So I think that's a a problem we have. Secondly, as Joe indicated, people are increasingly obsessed with their own personal health, which is, you know, a very modern phenomenon. Um, and it's a story in itself. And I think both those themes should be covered as stories in themselves. Why do politicians rely on science rather than fighting it out over climate change all the time? And the third thing is people desperately want to believe in something today. And science has the sense of truth that you know we can believe in something. It used to be religion. It used to be socialism and conservatism. And science is a crutch for people's belief, and we need to address that. And the fourth area is celebrity, which is increasingly associated with some of these health um, and science issues, and I think the Science Media Centre produced quite a good publication about that a while back, saying to the media, when celebrities endorse something, you know, look at the facts behind it. But you know, are the bigger issues that, in fact, we should not be debating the science, but the way in which the science is used in politics, particularly?
1: Well, I think there was subject for about four mm. hour-long debates yes. in that, yes. Martin yes. <laughs>
4: um, well, First comment, which relates to the last two questions, is I think, I think actually we should give some credit to politicians because I think it is fair to say that the uh, amount of science involved in political rhetoric under this government has been uh, uh, higher than under previous governments understandably because the issues are uh, higher on the agenda now. So I think we should give some credit to politicians uh, rather than the the negative spin which I think uh, you were putting on them. Uh, Regarding the need for uh, uh, certainty and belief um, I completely agree with you and that raises another issue which is uh, how strident scientists should be in rubbishing pseudoscience, like homeopathic medicine, astrology, etc. Uh, There are different views on that, you know, but maybe by rubbishing them loudly, one uh, sees them out of proportion, or maybe we should. Uh, But I agree with you that there is a need to believe in something, which is why, of course, uh, people aren't prepared to accept that there is an uncertainty, uh, even in uh, scientific areas where there is a strong consensus.
1: Mark Wolpert, hijacking of science by lobbyists, bearing in mind that we actually have an MP, Evan Harris, who I I, I will ask to respond in a moment.
2: I mean, I'd have to disagree with you. Surely science conclusions mapping onto policy is an extremely good thing. Mm -hmm. Policy based on evidence must be the way forward. And so I'd much rather have policy based on science than policy that ignored science.
1: Evan would like to respond to that. I was
11: going to say that, actually. So (laughs) I'll cut short my remarks. I just want to say two other things, though. First, I think it was Sense About Science, not the Science Media Centre, that did the celebrity thing. So, on a quick fact check, we ought to to make that point. But um, on the the initial question, Vivian, that you asked about why is is there a need to get accuracy in science where there isn't necessarily in other areas like pensions? I mean, I think there is. No, I
1: think my my point was is science any different from a subject like pensions in its. Uh, quest
11: for accuracy. And and you got answers in the end that said, no, because if people are going to act on it, there ought to be accuracy. But I think there is a difference. I think your question could have been answered to say, yes, there is a particular onus on the media to report science Uh, in a way. It might not uh, report other uh, non-science policy issues where people might do the wrong thing, invade the wrong country, that sort of thing on the basis of it. And that's because Mm -hmm. I think science... The whole nature of science is, is, has a, its method needs respect in a way that ideologically driven uh, or, or uh, policies or policies that have an ideological, economic, or political, you know, what does the public want component doesn't deserve. And that's why I think scientists and others are extremely frustrated when scientific findings just get the same um, treatment as... as or have the same inaccuracies or, or bias reporting as uh, as as policy I, I do both and i'm much more frustrated when scientific stuff is is misinterpreted and, and finally on the question that, that was just raised um, it is a good thing that politicians say that they they have science behind them because that mm-hmm. allows a test to be made mm-hmm. and if they lit so it's not a it's not a f- it's not a it's not a free call If they live by saying it's evidence-based, they should be able to die by it being evidence-based, which is one of the reasons why the Science and Technology Select Committee, on which I serve, argued very strongly that when when politicians say something's evidence-based, they must provide the evidence for which it's evidence-based and have that audited. Otherwise, it just, as I think the questioner was saying, it just cheapens the language of what's scientifically evidence-based.
12: Thank you very much. Can we go to this lady in the
1: second Um, row?
12: Jo Tanner, Coalition for Medical Progress. Um, My organisation deals primarily with communicating why animals are used in medical research um, to the public, which is not an easy task, um, especially as as I think it was Mark pointed out, that most um, news stories have to have a hook... And most of those hooks tend to be negative. You know, whether it's um, the closure of, of Oak's guinea pig farm, whether it's um, grave robbing, whatever it is, that tends to be the only way um, that that strong messages, positive messages about animal research can can come through. Yes, we're trying to, to break into the features pages, but I'd just be interested to hear from the panel exactly how how good news and, and general information for the public can come through without it turning into an advertorial.
5: Joe, can we turn to you on that? Yeah. In terms of using animals in research I think it's very difficult, uh, particularly because you've got scientists themselves who, when you go and interview them say, you mustn't tell you mustn't write that we've used mice in this study and uh, that's obviously because they don't want their own staff attacked so in that Environment. I think it's very, very difficult to get over a good news story about using animals in research. I think, actually, the best you can hope for is that a few people will talk about it and that one might be able to write occasionally a piece about why you need to use animals in research. Uh, but in terms of it being a wholly really positive piece about that, I think it's going to be extraordinarily difficult because of people's feelings... About it, about the idea of laboratory animals. I think I think it's very very difficult.
1: Mark
3: uh, Henderson. Yeah, there's a. I mean, what what you say about general information and sort of background information is by definition not news, which mm. is the which is the trouble. And um, you you're never going to be able to, in the context of a newspaper, carry something that effectively looks like an ad. Um, what what we can and do do, I think. And, and I think Joe's wrong that that, that I'm, I don't have a lot of people saying, you must not mention that we used animals. Uh, I, I, certainly way fewer than, than used to be the case. And I think more and more people are coming out and and being prepared to stand out, partly because of people like CMP. But um, I, th- I do think that, actually, the, the, the sheer amount of basic research that does involve animals um, when you're writing about that you should mention it and I try to and very often you can try to include in say in a, in a, in a study about something that's moving to clinical trials or, or something like that you just need to just a single line sort of um, following successful tests on animals or whatever <laughs> you can get a drip 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 in that way that's positive
1: I'm aware that we're coming to a close and I want to take some uh, more questions lots of hands still uh,
10: Bill Hartnett from the Royal Society this particularly to the journalists, you've spoken about the relationship you have with news desks and the subs. Do the opinion writers come to you for your expertise? Because often um, there is where the story is, in, at times, um, overhyped. So do they actually come to you, and do you have a good relationship with many of the opinion writers in the papers?
5: Briefly, Joe. Yes, and uh, often, I mean, if it's uh, to do with medical research, I'll be writing the leader on it anyway, so... Because we don't have, we have some leader writers, but not that many. Yeah. But do your columnists come to you? Uh, no, not always. No, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Mark? Yeah,
3: I'd say similar experience. Sometimes they do. The, the better ones tend to, or the ones who <laughs> feel that they, <laughs> or the ones who feel that they don't, they don't know their stuff. But. Uh, there's very little you can do, because the ones who don't tend to be the, mm. the ones who are most precious and the real prima donnas.
1: But also the most opinionated, which of course yeah. is why they're in the paper <laughs> in the first place.
9: Question here. Uh, uh, Renan Jackson, British Association for the Advancement of Science. Um, just a, a, a quick comment, the, the, the discussion here today, th- this morning, has has all been on the basis of an assumption that we all understand what science is, and what counts as science, and what doesn't. Could the panel just comment on, on that? Um, Because from a public point of view, um, scientific evidence may not be what is most valued, may even be rejected for reasons that have nothing to do with science. You might like to illustrate that through an example of the way that homeopathy is treated in in the press. So what counts as science? Does it actually matter? And how do you report that nuance in in science-related stories?
1: Mark, what is science?
2: Oh, I think science, one needs to interpret it extremely broadly. I think it's about knowledge about the universe in which we live in the broadest sense. And I think one shouldn't be too narrow in defining it, actually, as opposed to non-science, of
4: which there's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I agree with that. I think there is an issue of how strongly one should lay into things like homeopathy, um, which don't do tremendous harm. Um, But I think we also need to bear in mind that uh, there are very few issues which the public is concerned with which are just science. They all have political or ethical aspects, too, where the scientists don't have special expertise. So we've got to accept that uh, the issues are always wider than a purely scientific one.
1: Is there a lot in cosmology of people with non-science views? Because,
4: you know, the evidence base Uh, (laughs) in cosmology is... Well, it's best that it was. Of course, um, <coughs> uh, uh, if people have misperceptions about cosmology, it's not as dangerous as having misperceptions about miracle cures. But, of course, there are many people who do have them. In fact, I get letters from lots of people who've got the answer to the universe, um, and uh, my technique is to get them to write to each other. Um, and um, uh, uh, sometimes they hit it off with each other. Um, other times you get a letter from both saying, why did you tell me to write to that nut? LAUGHTER um, uh, Uh, So there are lots of misperceptions there Um, and uh, uh, I should say it is good that uh, there is public interest in uh, uh, subjects which uh, um, are purely cultural, like uh, cosmology, Darwinism, consciousness, etc. Indeed, uh, uh, those are the areas where there are the most books and we should bear in mind, as I said uh, at the beginning, that uh, the role of science is uh, uh, only in the headlines when it has direct impacts on everyday life. It's in documentaries and even better in books uh, if it's a serious issue where the author can actually get his or her uh, views through undistorted by sub-editors and all the rest.
1: We're going to take one last question
5: Hi, Tara Wamsley, University of Edinburgh. Um, I've got, I've, my background is experience, which has included working on um, dailies as well as a Sunday. So it's probably more of a question for Joe about Sunday newspapers and sort of the tenet that some people think that their stories have more holes in them than fishing nets. I'm now in media relations sort of at the other side and when the experts are talking to the Sunday, it's obviously very very much an issue that sundays are going to not necessarily yours but sundays will sensationalize journalists go in on the tuesday they've got an empty slate they're cold calling so they tend to think of an idea or latch onto something and make it stand up how would you say to deal with scientists and and put them at ease or how that they should handle Sunday journalists and Sunday journalism. One of the problems of course is that all the embargoes, all the journals are embargoed for daily papers so one cannot run the story until the Thursday or the Friday. Uh, So what you're trying to do is, on a Sunday paper, is scrap around for something that nobody else knows about and is going to come out shortly and you're actually asking the scientist or the doctor to tell you about it, often before it's appeared in publication. So it's, uh, it's very, very difficult. And one thing some of the Sunday journalists have tried to do is go to, for example, universities and say, if you're doing an interesting piece of work, uh, put it together and talk to all the Sundays together about it and have a press conference and handle the event yourselves in, in that way, rather than giving it to a daily and seeing it sort of compete with everything else that's happening in the day. But it is is very, very difficult because, again, it comes down to what the individual journalist is prepared to do in terms of hyping or not hyping a story and what your your news desk basically wants from you as well. So it's very difficult and there's a huge um, drive to to write the breakthrough stories that are 20 times harder on a Sunday paper simply because, because of the journals and the way it works.
1: Very briefly, Mark, would you advise the scientist to talk to a Sunday newspaper? (laughs) What do you think? (laughs) And on that sound piece of advice, uh, I think we'd better close. So I'd like you to thank your panel, Mark Henderson of The Times, Mark Warpert, Director of the Wellcome Trust, Joe Revel, Health Editor of The Observer, and uh, Lord Rees of the Royal Society. And we should also thank uh, The Welcome for hosting this event and indeed Editorial Intelligence for having the intelligence to put together such a very fine debate.